Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Nathan Winters. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks for having me in. And just as an overview, this podcast will primarily focus on Nathan sharing his story as an early release missionary. And as background, before we get into that, Nathan grew up in Utah County, graduated from Timpanogos High School in 2017, comes from a wonderful LDS family with five siblings. Nathan's right in the middle. We'll talk about his high school life a little bit. We'll talk about Nathan getting his call and a little bit about the culture of stateside missionaries versus non-stateside missionaries, but especially then Nathan's experience um, on his mission and how that led to a being him being, quote unquote, an early release missionary and and how that in- experience stretched him and how it continues to stretch him. As I visited with Nathan beforehand and he offered a wonderful prayer, Nathan has been stretched um, in really difficult ways that I think has helped him grow and given him great insights into lots of different subjects we'll talk about. We're recording this podcast in May of 2019 and Nathan came home in February of 2019. So this is still pretty new and pretty raw. And Nathan just recently gave a homecoming talk in his ward we may reference. Anything that I should correct at this point, Nathan? I think you're pretty solid. Um, so talk about um, talk about your interests at BYU, at, sorry, at Timpan- in your high school. Yeah. So I'm a drummer. I'm a percussionist. Um, I was a mountain biker, so I was on, you know, the drum line and in the marching band and on our school's mountain biking team at Simpanogos. So. I like those. They're very different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. D- there was no over... I can't imagine any overlap between those two interests. Yeah. Unless was... you can take your drums in your head as you mountain bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, something like that. Well, and, you know, sometimes when you need an escape, knowing good open fields is a great place to let loose. So... At high school, okay for you? Um, any your emotional health okay? Fitting in with your fellow friends? Yeah. Your feelings about the church. I mean, if I had met you in high school, would I have picked up your pretty, just a great high school kid? Yeah, high school was pretty solid for me. Um, mental, emotional health. So I uh, had ADHD, have ADHD. Um, so I was on medication for that um, throughout. I was on medication for that throughout um, junior high and high school. Um, and that is what made me positive I was going to serve a stateside mission. I had known that since I was about 12 or 13. Um, and so, you know, I, I was pretty good in high school. Life was great. Did you want to go to BYU? If I'd met you as your junior or sophomore year, would you say BYU is my future? Um, I debated between Utah State and BYU, um, but in the end, it just went where the money was. So, And you got into BYU? I did. And how did that come? Just an email during the night? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was actually on a band tour out in California and uh, received an email and checked my admission status, and there we were. So it was pretty good. That's great. Yeah. Um, At BYU, um, I'm on the drum line there. Um, What does it mean to be on the drum line? So we perform with the marching band at football games. Um, We've done some other small stuff too, um, side projects, but... Decent rehearsal schedule, good group of friends, and you get to hit things with sticks for money. So it's good. It's pretty good. That's great. It's a great gig. <laughs> Was it hard to get in the drum line? I think I mean, so. Yeah, I assume you just had to try out for that, and yeah, there was yeah, a bunch yeah. of people trying out. So you submit a video audition. They uh, take those. They look through them and call you back a few weeks later. Um, I'm actually waiting on the results of 
this year's audition right now. Wow. So we'll see. Um, but I took one spot on the instrument I was playing. There was one spot open and I got it. So I, I mean, I'm happy about that. So. And I was reading your Twitter feed this morning um, before we started the podcast and you were kind of, it, it was kind of leading up to your own mission call mm-hmm. and the culture of stateside versus non-stateside. Share with our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've known for quite a few years that I'd be going to a stateside mission. Um, I was initially a little frustrated about that, which, you know, maybe says something. Um, but I was a little frustrated that, oh, hey, I'm going to serve in the United States. That that just felt bad. Um, but I learned to accept it and then learned that, hey, that's probably not a good thing. Um, kind of at the beginning of high school that, you know, I felt that kind of shame. Anyway, um, in college, my roommate received a mission call. Um, and we were watching the video of him opening this call um, to find out his assignment. And his sister asked very loudly if he would be disappointed. So this is on the video. On the video. Yeah, right before he read it. um, If he would be disappointed, if he was prepared to be disappointed when he went stateside. Um, And that just irked me. That just rubbed me the wrong way. And so, you know, that night I did what I do best. I went online and I wrote about it. Um, And I came to terms with the fact that we treat international missions as this glorious vacation, um, or we culturally, we do international missionaries are great. I served internationally for a chunk there. Um, but, but we tend to romanticize them. And I I think that's the best word. We romanticize international missions. Um, but at the same time, stateside missions are incredible because then you don't have to worry about fitting into the culture um, for native-born missionaries here. Uh, You don't have to worry about learning a new language, new cultural routines. Um, You can just get right into the work. And that was what I was so excited for, um, was I would be able to just get right to work and not have to deal with learning another language. Um, So about a month after that experience um, and writing up that thing, um, I received my mission call. It was called to serve and assigned to labor in the Washington-Spokane mission, um, which includes a tiny chunk of Montana, the panhandle of Idaho, um, most of eastern Washington, and um, a little tiny, tiny chunk of Canada in British Columbia. couple questions. Where did that, on that video, where did that missionary, right before his sister said, where did he go? Yeah, or she? In, yeah, yeah. He's in Argentina. So... Oh. <laughs> Yeah. He did go international. He absolutely did. And where did you go to write? So we're going to talk about you being a writer. Yeah. Where, is this one of the first things you wrote about, or were you writing before that? I was writing before that, but it was all just private notes and collections of thoughts. Um, but I felt like this one was fairly applicable, so I took to you know our favorite platform, Twitter. So you um, went on Twitter. I That's went right. to Twitter to this because it's an easy distribution. Um and this was a condensed message that we could easily get across. And and is this same Twitter stream start with this experience and then talk about your own call? Yes, it does. So you just kept adding tweets to this? Mm-hmm. So originally, I think there were seven or eight, um, seven or eight tweets about you know why we treat missions in Ukraine as more glorious than missions in Alabama, um, and why that frustrated me. Um, and it received a lot of attention, which was good. Um, it started some good conversation and people talked, which was great. Um, and then as I received my mission call, 
um, and my assignment to labor in the Spokane mission. Um, I added to that. Um, and I added a few other tweets of general conference talks. Um, and then I added another one just barely um, with a link to an article I wrote on the early return experience. Yeah, so, so I picked up this. This is sort of like a journal. Yeah. Sometimes we think as, as add-on tweets is just a, one tweet that was sent out the same day. Yeah. And I, you know Twitter better than I do, but I realized that what you did was just kept adding the same string. And as I read that this morning, I realized there were like seven or eight month gaps. Yeah. And then you, I'm back. And that's when I was gone on my mission. Because you weren't tweeting. Exactly. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What, what um, do you think, if there's a way to measure this challenge in our culture, do you think it's get if it's, is it increasing as a challenge, decreasing? I mean, are we making progress and are there general authority talks that you can point people to that kind of help um, what we should do as a culture and how we can improve here? Absolutely. So I like to think that it's, we're doing better. I like to think that as a church, um, as a membership, as a body of people trying to follow Christ, that we are moving more and more towards each person, towards accepting the concept that each person's path is different and right for them. Um, that, you know, not everyone has to serve in Thailand. Thank goodness I did not. I would not have made it. Um, and not everybody had to, you know, serve a full two-year or 18-month mission. Some people don't. And I think as a church, we're getting better and better about that. Um, and maybe this sounds weird, but especially with the new 2019 curriculum that focuses so much on the Savior's love rather than the particulars of, you know, travel experiences, um, as we focus more and more on Christ-like love, that we begin to learn and understand that each person's story and each person's path just has to take a different route. Um, one of my favorite talks um, comes from Elder Bednar, and let me try and pull this up right now. Give me a quick moment while I do this. You can cut this out. Great. So this talk that I absolutely love um, was given by Elder David A. Bednar in April 2017 priesthood session. Um, it's called Called to the Work. And in it, he differentiates between the call to serve as a missionary for the Savior and the assignment to labor. Um, because that's what the call letter does. We are called, your divine commission is to teach and invite people to repent and make changes and come unto Christ. But your assignment to labor is a separate logistical field, if you will. And sometimes you're assigned to the mission for the people you'll meet there. Sometimes you're assigned there for the mission president. Sometimes you're assigned there because it's where you just needed to be for your own growth. Um, but the assignment to labor does not change that you have been called and commissioned by Jesus Christ to represent him. I like that. I like the way you separated those two. Yeah. And so talk about just, um, you're in a good spot emotionally. You're off to the MTC. I don't know if you want to talk about any time between where we left off and just going to the MTC, or do you want to pick it up at the MTC? I mean, few bits and pieces here and there. Um, I was able to pick up a, 
a job, a good job over the summer before I left because I left in the beginning of August. And you went a whole year at BYU. I went a whole year and then... Did you live at home or did you live at BYU? I lived on campus. Okay. Um, And so I, after that, I moved back home for three and a half months, um, worked a good job. Um, And my boss there um, was pretty incredible. Um, He just kept encouraging me that you know, no matter where you serve, it's going to be perfect for you. Um, and he always followed up with this caveat that, oh, I didn't serve, but members of my family have, and it was absolutely perfect for them. Um, and as we talked about that, it became clear that he was comfortable with not serving, but it had taken him a while to get there because we place such an importance, you know, Spencer W. Kimball's call to every young man who's worthy and able to serve to do so. Um, but for his, for his case, it was the ability to serve at the moment. He wasn't in a spot where he could serve. He wasn't able. Um, and so he talked about how each person's path was going to be different and Spokane was going to be perfect for me. And when I got back, I needed to get back with him. And I think that was kind of a precursor, just kind of a, pre-reminder pre-minder is that a thing i think um, it's a thing Nathan. It, it's a thing um it was it was a pre-minder of this lesson that's just been pounded in lately that each person's path is individual and that when the lord takes you down an unexpected timeline you just follow along and he's going to lead you there and it's just for you and i think our i need to improve on this i mean we've had four sons get a call on missions and we have their name plaques in our podcast room, coincidentally, in their picture, and three have served, and one just got a call, and mm-hmm. one sir is served in Baltimore, and the other three have have served outside of the states. But I think we've, I've sometimes, you know, hoped my sons would have this non-stateside experience, and if that's my hope as a young father, I'm probably communicating things for the from age zero to age 19 or 18 when my sons or daughters get calls that create this culture and this mindset. And maybe as a, as you younger parents are listening, you can do what Nathan's teaching here is maybe at least in our families, we can control the culture. And so when someone gets a call to wherever, we're just as excited as someone gets a call to wherever. Yeah. See, and I think my father did a great job of that. He served in the Hartford, Connecticut mission. Um, and when I learned that I was going to go stateside in, when I was 12, um, I remember it being so frustrating. I was so upset that I wouldn't go somewhere exotic, eat fancy foods and, you know, learn a new language. Well, I still had to eat weird food. I still had to you know <laughs> learn and grow. That, that's a common den- denominator, but he led and guided, guided, oh, there we go. He led and guided me through, um, you know why why this culture isn't the greatest because you will learn and you will grow and you will be exposed no matter where you go to people who aren't your own and that in of itself is what the savior wants for us Uh, there's a good mark twain quote about how travel is fatal to bigotry prejudice hatred Um, and that's what the savior wants is when we move even if it's to the next state over we are among unfamiliar people and we learn and we grow there no matter if it's in the states if it's in canada mexico or uruguay i mean no matter where you go you will learn and you will grow and that's what it all comes down to 
I like that. And a, a parallel challenge of our culture that has an impact on me is is sort of measuring our progress by our church callings. <laughs> and we're not, we could do a whole separate podcast on that. And and it's uh, it's certainly something that I've had to deprogram myself because I know I created a lot of worth in what kind of callings I would have. And in our culture, we talk about someone who's been inactive and now he's the bishop. And so that's our definition of sort of your back. It's not that he's a disciple of Christ and has a great relationship with Christ or it's sometimes to dramatize how someone's doing so well in the church, we sort of go off on other callings. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to go on that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's another challenge of our culture. We create self-worth in things that are outside of our control. Oh, absolutely. And certainly where you serve your mission or how long you serve is you're going to talk about is outside of your control. Mm -hmm. So talk about just when things you realize that you know, things were going to be really tough for you. Well, it was the first night at the MTC. <laughs> okay, so it started. Tell <laughs> yeah. us about that story. So I went into my mission full of hope. And I think I came out of my mission with my hope intact. Um, but that first night in the MTC, I didn't sleep. And this was an unprecedented problem for me. I mean, I had shaky sleep before, but everyone had. And it wasn't anything major. But the first night of the mission or in the, in the training center, I just didn't sleep. And that was so hard. So the next morning I went through the day and just was exhausted. Wow. And the next day, next night, I didn't sleep again. And then the next night I caught only a little bit of sleep. I think it was two hours. And it became readily apparent to me that unless I was able to get this insomnia under control, it would be a major part of my mission story. And uh, here we are. So, you know, um, going throughout the MTC, going to classes was so hard because I was just exhausted. Um, And I tried my best not to let it on. Um, I've got wonderful parents who would drop everything and, you know, commit their lives to finding a cure for sleep deprivation, you know, if they could. So I just didn't talk about it because, you know, I was trying to be this consecrated missionary who didn't have any thoughts for himself, but I was, I was struggling. Um, once I got back out, once I got out into the field. Did you talk to anybody at the MTC? Um, I let, I think, three people know, um, and it was just the missionaries in my room. So you didn't reach out to health people that would be at the MTC? No, no, because I was terrified of my status as a missionary being in jeopardy. I was, I mean, I'd heard stories about people coming home early, and I was terrified of that. I refused to let that be me. And so I hit it and I pushed it down. And that was a pattern throughout my entire mission was just trying to hide it. Um, I was terrified of coming home early. That's pretty honest, Nathan. Yeah. Um, Once I got out into the field, you know, they had you fill out a medical questionnaire. um, And I let my mission nurse know. Good. Um, I said, hey, I've been struggling with sleep. And she said, okay, we'll figure this out. We'll get we'll get on top of this. Um, and that first night in the mission field, I actually slept fairly well, I got about five hours of sleep. Um, and then I was shipped up to this little podunk town in the middle of, uh, actually not in the middle, right at the border, um, between Canada and the U S it was Grand Forks, British Columbia. Um, so, you know, we crossed the border, got up into this little dingy apartment and I just didn't sleep that night. I caught, I think an hour and a half, um, 
And I recognized pretty quickly that this was going to be a trial. So getting into missionary work was pretty tough. Um, I began to work, you know, put one foot in front of the next and get going. Um, but it was, it was pretty hard to do on, on very little sleep. Um, <laughs> Grand Forks is unique um, in that it's not a branch, it's a unit. So it has very small membership. They meet in an office building. Um, it was just recovering from a flood, so tensions were high. Um, and they didn't have the stability to be a branch. And the closest branch by about an hour and a half was down across the border in an even smaller town called Republic, Washington. Um, so this unit was in a pretty precarious situation. Um, and it put a lot of stress on the missionaries to you know, help find people to grow this unit, bring people to Christ so that as a community they could strive to be better. Um, and that did not help at all with the sleep. At night, it was absolutely terrifying um, because I knew it, it was absolutely terrifying because I wasn't sure how it, I was going to make it through the next day on as little sleep as I had. You know, I have no experience in this space, <laughs> so I'm really glad you're helping me understand this space. And I probably, since I have no experience and have never had sleeping problems, I probably don't have enough empathy because I've never listened to anybody like you, Nathan. And I think that's one of the things I love about what you're doing, what coming on the podcast and just helping me to understand. Now I'm starting to think if I couldn't sleep at night, it's not that I can't sleep at night, but my mind's awake. Exactly. And so I can't, I mean, I guess I probably thought, well, I could probably just physically not be awake, but my mind's asleep. But no, that your mind's awake. So tell us what your mind's doing. Because you're trying, yeah. you can't sleep. Mm -hmm. And so, so did your, what do you do with your mind all night? So your mind is the world's best time machine, which is the worst thing. What a great thing. statement. Yeah, it's, it's terrible for when you can't sleep because your mind instinctively at night tries to relive the events of the previous day. That's what you do at night. Your brain collects the memory and, you know, stores it wherever it does. I don't know enough about psychology, but... You know, at night, your mind relives and then pre-lives events in your life. So your mind will instinctively try and race back to what went well that day, what went wrong that day. And then for pretty much everyone, um, it'll try and create scenarios in the future, just trying to plan ahead. Um, and that is exhausting. It's terrifying. Um Especially for me, I like to I like to have a lot of information before I make decisions. Um, and being on the mission, um, I didn't have access to a lot of that. And so where my mind instantly went was what I'd be doing afterwards. After your mission. After my mission, exactly. Um, the thoughts about school, about marriage, about a career, um, where I'd live, my financial situation. Um, so there was a lot of worry involved there. Um, so at night it gets kind of terrifying because you're just flashing through all of these different scenarios and situations. And underneath that is the worry that you won't be able to fulfill your calling as a missionary the next well, morning because you can't sleep. Not, it's not because you don't have a testimony or because you don't have a desire to serve. It's because you just physically haven't had the rest you need. Exactly. And your mind, you know, I've never thought of 
my mind can get going like that too, Nathan. Um, but my but it goes to sleep, mm-hmm. and so it rests, and mm-hmm. I physically rest. But to you know where you are, that's really tough. Yeah, it's. Uh, did you think you were doing anything wrong? Did I mean when things go sideways? Oh, somehow we think, well, this is because I'm not righteous enough. Exactly. Or, I, or at age 13, I didn't pray that whole week, and I right, don't know right. where your mind goes when things go sideways. Oh, I skimped on tithing when I was 14. Oh, okay, I'm going to hell. Yeah, you know, something like that was so irrational, but that's what your brain does. And so there was this constant worry about a not being able to perform the next day, b what was going to happen in my life after the mission, and c if something I had done was not taken care of. It's honest. If I had, you know, said something unkind to someone, if I had made a big mistake, if you know I had judged someone harshly, if this was a quote unquote punishment for you know, my less than perfection. And so that was really, really hard to get through. Um, I think it's really easy for us to to look in the mirror and then over self-analyze when things oh, don't absolutely. go right. And somehow absolutely. I think there's a cultural thing that if we do everything right, then everything turns out okay. Yeah. It's not really our doctrine. No, it's not in the slightest. And so then <laughs> you, here you are on a mission doing really giving yourself to God and doing what you can to help other people on a really complicated mission in your own situation would, you know, so I'm just kind of mourning for you Yeah, as you're very alone. And I don't know if I assume your companion doesn't have the skills, just like I wouldn't have the skills to know exactly how to help you. No. So yeah, they, uh, they didn't really have the skills to help with, an insomniac. I didn't have the skills to help with myself either. That's the fun part. And companions sometimes add to our own burdens. Companions aren't perfect. No, and absolutely sometimes not. they might do things, you know, to add to our own burdens. Yeah, exactly. And that was that was my experience. Um and I mean I I hit rock bottom about a month in to serving in the field. Um we had just turned the well, no, it was about the end of September. Um, when I really had just sunk and it just felt terrible. Um, and I had consigned myself that I would always be a quote unquote subpar missionary because I just wasn't able to put out at the rates that other missionaries were able to. I wasn't able to be as emotionally invested, as physically active, um, or as mentally sharp as others. Um, and it all kind of came to a head um, late one October morning. Um, well, in late October, that's what I'm trying to say here. Um, it's about 3 a.m. And this was, a, this was a defining experience for me. I had prayed and I had prayed and left messages and felt like the windows of heaven were shut to my voice. I had felt like God was there. I had hope that God was there. But my faith was diminishing because I just couldn't see his hand. And I couldn't see why a loving Heavenly Father would let me not sleep because I mean this, I was supposed to be on his errand. Right. And I just couldn't sleep. I wasn't able to work effectively. And so, you know, after a very, very tough night of just soul searching and trying to figure out why I couldn't talk with heaven, 
um, I kind of gave up. I was lying on the floor of this grungy apartment um, and I grabbed a notebook from my desk and decided that I needed to just write a prayer. Writing has been a strength for me for most of my life. Um, as far as I can remember, it's been something that I, I do well with. Um, and I started to write down a prayer to my father because, you know, if my voice wasn't working, hopefully a pen would. And sorry. Um, as I wrote, there was a slow dawn of revelation um, where I was able to make concrete what I was asking my father in heaven for. And I was able to see exactly how he was sustaining me. There's a line from praise to the Lord, the almighty that I think about all the time. Hast thou not seen how all thou needest hath been granted in what he ordaineth? And I think about that line all the time. My favorite recordings has it as this triumphant chorus. And that became a reality for me that morning as I was writing, because I was able to start seeing where on days when I didn't think I had the strength to get up from the table, on days when I was struggling to put one foot in front of the other or struggling with the idea of driving an hour out to the very outskirts of this Canadian unit, when when I was just struggling, how the Lord would sustain me. Often it was small, simple ways. Often it was just a little spark of motivation. But my hope in God was strengthened. And it hit me that morning that this was how I communicated with heaven. That in times of crisis, when I made clear what I was asking my God for through my writing, that he would respond and he would teach me in a method that I knew, not through, you know, just no context feelings, but in a medium that spoke to me personally. And that strengthened my testimony, gave me strength to keep going because God knew me well enough to speak to me in a way that I could recognize. And so that morning, you know, I was excited. Um, I was screaming and shouting and crying and woke my companion up and he went back to sleep and I did not. But, you know, it, it taught me that God will deliver. That despite the challenges he gives us, he's going to help you through. And if his deliverance at the time is you just having hope in him, then that's good enough. Alma teaches us that faith is is uh, preempted by even a desire to believe. And we learn, I think in ether, that if we have hope in God, that we can hope for a better world. And that hope gives us strength to carry on. And so that that just strengthened my testimony that God was so willing to bring me through little bit by little bit. Um, the nights were still terrifying. Was it immediate deliverance? Absolutely not. Um, it took a lot and a lot of medicine to get me to sleep that night. Um, but it was absolutely a learning experience that my father knew I needed. It's cool. Yeah. And I, I think this will take you through the rest of your life. And so sometimes I think, well, 
you know this better than me, was this something that, because you were so stretched, this is the only way we'd learn this about you and and how to communicate to God in one of your great gifts of writing? I honestly... I don't know. Yeah. I, I Like you said, I think this will take me a very, very long time to dissect. Um, like you said at the very beginning, this is still pretty fresh. Yeah. This is pretty tough on me. Um, it's honest. But... I think that God trusts me to learn and he trusts all of us to learn. But I think he's trusting me that in time he knows that I will learn the lessons I need to, or I will recognize the lessons that I've learned. If I had met you on this October day, were you worried that your mission was going to end because of your insomnia? Yes. And after this experience, did you have more hope that you'd be okay for the whole two years? Absolutely. And so, yeah, talk with our listeners just kind of more of the story then. Yeah. Because you came home in February, which is about three or four months from October, yeah. roughly. So that night gave me a lot of hope. Hope's a good thing. <laughs> so good. <laughs> oh, that night gave me a lot of hope that I would be able to make it. Like I mentioned earlier, one of my big fears at night was that this was going to send me home because I wasn't performing as well as other missionaries. And I know that's irrational um, or that basis for going home is irrational, but it was something I just fixated on. So after this, I had more hope that I would make it. My companion at the time did not like talking. He was a very, very quiet person. Um, and in this town full of <laughs> loud Canadians, because that's what Grand Forks is, um, I had to do a lot of talking wow. and it put a lot of stress on me. And so after this great revelation of hope, um, as we got through November, um, I started being weighed down again, just by the stress of having to put out when I couldn't. And I recognized the Lord's hand there. Um, not as much as I should have looking back, but I recognized where he was giving me strength, putting words in my mouth. Um, for for some pretty tough situations. And it got to the point where at the end of the transfer, I wasn't sure if I could make it another round with my companion at the time because it was so draining for me. And then transfer calls came and I was sticking with this companion wow. in the same area, the same high stress area. And I about lost it that night. Um, <laughs> I was permission to lose it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a exactly. pretty logical yeah. um, outcome. I was so stressed and I tried to hide it from him. I'm positive he noticed, but I just did not think I could make it another round. And I was at this point, I had begun begging God for a way out, for a release from having to do all of the talking, all of the work in this companionship. And that's not a bad thing. He, he was an incredible, incredible missionary. Um, when he talked, it was with power, but it was a 95, five situation. About a week into this transfer, we received a call from our zone leaders that the missionaries in our sponsoring branch in the border, um, had been separated in an emergency, um, and that we were going to cover both areas. Um, so that definitely added to the stress. Wow. But the missionary who stayed behind and joined the silent companion and I was one of my closest friends on the mission. Um, 
he was one of the ones I told in the MTC. I mean, he and I came out together, so we were, we were pretty close. Um, and so it became, that was a clear, clear answer from God that he was looking out for me. I want to go back to just that phrase you said, came out together does not mean I'm interviewing a gay guy. Yeah, no, we came out on the mission together. Sorry so just because there's so many podcasts I do that are LGBTQ, I don't want anybody to read between the lines there. So keep telling your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this elder, Elder Huber and I were phenomenal together. We matched each other's teaching styles. Um, our talking together was great. And we had a massive, massive area to cover. Um, this branch covers um, Ferry County in Washington and a little bit of Okanagan County. And for context for how rural this is, the, uh, the county seat of Ferry has 900 people in the town. And everyone else is very, very spread out. We had 3,000 miles to drive that month, and we absolutely used them. So we were covering a massive Canadian area and a massive Washington area at the same time. So one of the benefits of being in this trio, one of the tender, tender mercies, was that we could send any one of us missionaries off on splits with members. And there were so many days where I was so exhausted, um, so, so done, where we just opted to have Elder Rogers go on splits with members, which he absolutely loved. We had this talk, you know, no hard feelings. Um, and Elder Huber and I would just sit and talk. And that was a godsend because he was the first understanding companion I had really had who had been able to talk with me about it. So you opened up about how you're feeling and he could handle it. He absolutely could. I mean, it's also because he saw what it was doing to me. He knew you well enough to know this isn't the real you. And... Yeah, exactly. Um, the trailer we lived in in Republic um, wasn't much better than the grungy apartment we also lived in in Grand Forks. You know, we went back and forth between the two. The trailer had no insulation. It flooded and froze twice. Electrical was terrible. Um, and so there were many, many nights where I was out in a freezing living room um, while the other two were packed in a small room with space heaters. Um, just writing and communing, trying to commune with heaven. And he recognized the struggle I was going through. And he provided a listening ear and a voice of comfort. And that was the best five weeks of my mission. Despite the craziness, despite how bad our physical circumstances were, having someone to talk to and having someone who was willing to just understand and help me out when I needed was the big miracle of my service. And this is Elder Huber. H-U-B-E-R. Yes. Where is he from? South Jordan, Utah. South Jordan. I'm struck by what Elder Huber did that all of us can do. He didn't he didn't have a background in clinical psychology. He didn't no. have something up his sleeve that he just he, the words you keep coming back to do is he just listened. Mm-hmm. And he tried the best he could to understand, and he believed in you. Yeah. And there's something so healing about listening, even though he didn't solve your insomnia. Um, but just, you know, it's a, I just think that's what we're wired as, as humans, is to have people in our lives that can listen to us. Absolutely. And that's so healing. We're wired for human connection. We're wired for companionship. We're wired for authentic communication yeah. that you're having with other Huber. Yeah. That was 
he was nothing short of a miracle. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, he also promised me that I'd be his best man. So uh, if you're listening, you uh, <laughs> better make good on that promise. Who's going to get married first? Uh, him. Probably. I'm not stable. Let's be real. <laughs> I think you're pretty stable and you're oh, pretty authentic, which is a great, great character attribute. I think for your first, your, your wife will love. Thank you. Um, Keep telling your story. Yeah. So the next, after that five weeks in Republic and in Grand Forks serving in two countries at once, um, I was pulled down to Pullman in Washington where Washington state university is go kooks. Um, and I was serving in the YSA ward there. Um, with all the young adults, it was great. But because it was an on-campus mission area, I was constantly having to put out emotionally. I was constantly having to talk and talk and talk and deal with some crazy situations. And that was stressful and did not help the insomnia. Um, and, but at this point, I had stabilized from around one to two hours a night and some spotty nights of no sleep to three to four hours a night and the occasional night of no sleep, maybe once every two weeks. So that was good. That was huge, huge improvement. Um, one transfer of training this new missionary turned into two and the, (laughs) the night after, um, the second transfer began, I just didn't sleep. Um, and that was, that was brutal because I had been doing fairly well. I felt like I was finally catching up and like I could make it and I didn't sleep. And the next night I didn't sleep. Wow. And the next morning, um, I was walking up a hill with my companion to an early morning meeting. Um, and my companion was trying to cheer me up by throwing snowballs at me. Weird, but it worked. Um, so I was throwing snowballs back and I slipped and my shoulder came out. The reason that's significant is because previous to my mission, two weeks prior, um, I had slipped and dislocated my shoulder and tore my labrum. But the condition for me going out on the mission was that I would do physical therapy religiously. And if it came out again, I would have to come home and get surgery. So this Saturday morning when my shoulder came out, I was terrified. I know I've used that a lot, but it's an accurate word. Um, I put it back in and my companion was sworn to secrecy because I knew that if this reached my mission nurse, then I would be on the plane home. Um, and so that Saturday was tough. That Saturday night, I didn't sleep. Sunday night, I got a little bit of sleep, which was great. And then Monday night was absolutely brutal. Monday night was so, so hard. Uh, My mind was racing. It was none of my meditation or my mindfulness tricks were working and I got into a bad spot and the next morning I let my mission president know and uh, we had a talk and he said that we just keep continuing to watch it I didn't sleep the next night well no 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 the next night I slept um, but I was on a drug that had some pretty terrible side effects and the next night I didn't sleep that's what happened Thursday, I had interviews with my mission president and he said that we were going to get pulled up to Spokane. So I went with him up to the mission home, stayed that night in Spokane Valley. And um, (laughs) the condition was that if that night was brutal too, then we would find a plane home. 
um, and I would be released. And that was really hard for me to come to come to terms with. It didn't sink in until about five in the morning when I was awake and I was staring at the ceiling in this oddly cheerful room in the basement of the mission home that this was it. I let my mission president know how the night went. Spoiler alert, it was uh, terrible. Um, and we made the call to my parents that I was going to come home. Now, a lot of craziness had happened in my family in the last three weeks. My sister had had twins. Wow. My grandfather had passed away. Wow. My little brother had been in an accident and broken his back and collapsed along. And this was just a series of crazy things happening in my family. But my mom said something on the phone that I won't forget. She said she was at complete peace with whatever happened. And my mother is usually a pretty stable person, but she doesn't use the words complete peace often. Wow. And so I knew that it was going to be okay. But coming home was so hard. I, uh, My mission president drove me to the airport that afternoon. It's cool. He pulled over at the drop-off, hopped out, got, brought my, got my stuff for me, and uh, gave me a big hug and said, Elder Winters, if this was your mission, this was your mission. You served nobly, you served valiantly. And he said, I will fight tooth and nail to get you back here, if that's what's right. And... We, we hugged, we cried for quite a bit. Said, I love you like a son. Go get better. He sent me on my way. There's something really cool about a mission present driving oh, you, getting your luggage out of the car. The final person that you saw from your mission, not sure every mission present can or would do that. Yeah. This is a pretty tender experience. Yeah. You uh, left me with the charge to be a missionary even on the plane home. So I did my best. I sent a referral to Can or to California. Oh. And my parents had left the viewing for my grandfather that night to pick me up at the airport, my little brothers in tow. And in the Salt Lake Air Airport, there's a set of escalators that you go down to get into the luggage area where everyone's waiting. And I stood at the top of those escalators for about five minutes. I just was not ready to come back. Could they see you were kind of around the corner? I I was kind of around the corner. I know my little brother saw me once, but... So I came down, you know, lots of hugs. People were congratulating me, asking me where I served. And I just wanted to go to bed. I just wanted to be done. And I got... We got back that night. We, uh... I was released that night by my stake president. And taking off that tag... A solid 17 months early was without question the hardest thing I had done to that point because it meant to me that I hadn't lived up to the anticipation of my family, of my ward, of my mission, or of myself. And at that point, it sunk in that this was what I had to deal with from now on. The next morning, um, as a released missionary, I went to my grandfather's funeral and I faced most of my extended family on my father's side. 
And that was traumatic because I did not want to see anyone. It was a further, it reinforced that I was back. So I held myself together through that. And afterwards, I was so spent. I was so done. Because everyone asked, oh, you're back. No one had expected to see me back this early. Everyone was asking why. And I just told them about the shoulder thing. That was my main story. It's an accurate story. It is an accurate story. Not everyone needs to know every bit of the story. And so I told them about the shoulder and just tried to keep conversation to a minimum. Next day I went to church and uh, no one knew there either. And so dealing with the questions, um, I saw someone craning their neck to see if I took the sacrament. Um, I saw Can we just stop right there? Yeah. It's pretty tender. You saw someone craning their neck to see if you took the sacrament. My bishop announced over the pulpit that I was back for shoulder surgery. And that was a tender mercy because I know it deflected a lot in a lot of the comments. But I saw one of my neighbors just lean forward just a little bit and just see if he was taking the sacrament. And that hurt. I struggled to go to it should hurt. school. I'm just sorry. Uh, it should hurt. If anybody would say that shouldn't hurt, that should hurt. That's why I'm doing this, you know. Might as well talk about it. Um, I struggled to go to Sunday school. The next week, I was kind of in a daze. Um, my parents encouraged me to be as active as possible. Um, so I was going on walks a lot. I was searching for a job. Um, and it was... It was so hard because I didn't have time to grieve. Um, I just shoved the emotions, uh, this loss. I shoved loss down and I refused to deal with it. Um, I had shoulder surgery on March 8th. Um, it was a much bigger tear than they had anticipated. Um, so surgery was a little more intensive than they anticipated. And after that, I spent about a week. Um, I spent three days on Percocet, which was not good. Um, but I spent a week just on drugs recovering. And then I started going to job interviews and just actively trying to hit that home. And didn't really get the time to process. Um, and so with, with everything that had happened, it was fresh in my mind that coming home early was now my reality. I decided to put the decision of going back off. Um, I decided that it just wasn't something I was going to do and decide on. I like that because I think you have to make decisions uh, in a position of strength. Yeah. Emotional strength, physical strength, spiritual strength, and you're just spent yeah. through no fault of your own. So I think that's a, that's a sign of strength to make, to do what you just said you did. I talked to my bishop, um, and I was uh, called as a temple worker, um, working as an ordinance worker in the Timpanogos Temple. And I had done that prior to- And you to still do that now? Yes. I had done that prior to my mission. Cool. And I was assigned right back to the same shift, um, which was wonderful, which was so good because these, these people I was serving with were some of the closest companions in the gospel I had. They were- most of them are old. They are rocks. They are solid, solid people who have relationships with Christ. 
And that was something I desperately needed. Did you feel less judged in that culture of just coming? Was there something healing? Was it just better than, even though there's well-meaning church, people at church and well-meaning people in the temple, was the temple better and and you're able, and if so, why? When I showed up for my first meeting before the shift I was going to work, um, the shift coordinator asked me to stand up. He said, this is Nathan Winters. Many of you know him. Um, he just returned home from the Washington Spokane mission for arm surgery uh, or for shoulder surgery. And uh, he said, we're so excited to have him back because he's in the right place. And something about that little tag, he's in the right place, was so comforting to me. I was not sure if this is what God had in plan for me because I was trying to do my best to be a missionary. I was trying to do what, you know, I've heard since I was a baby that I was supposed to do. And this little tag of he's in the right place was perfect. And people did more than I could have asked them to do while we were waiting as a group. People asked me about my service. They didn't ask about the shoulder surgery. They didn't ask about, you know, why I had come home or my plans for the future or anything like that. They asked about the service and about how my testimony had grown, experiences of faith. And that was the healing I needed. It was was a first step in realizing that I served a mission. I served a full-time mission. Not for the full length of time, but I was a full-time missionary. And my efforts were good enough because it brought me closer to my Savior and I helped bring others. And so being in that space where these temple workers were just so kind and wanted to know about the good was more than I could have asked for. That's cool. That's just helpful for, I think, our listeners because we want to do the right thing. And some of the things you talked about there were very helpful and I love where you taught the temple workers just, they want to know about your mission. Yeah. And it wasn't about coming home early or why, or are you going back? Mm-hmm. And, and I love that. We all can do that. Yeah. See, and that's, that's one of the things I hope this podcast gets across is that everyone's story is different. Everyone's path has different stones. That sounds cliche, but when we're focusing on the good, what supports that path? If we're looking at, you know, the flowers right alongside that path rather than thorns in the distance, then it provides this welcoming space for early return missionaries to exist. Because fighting to exist in a space where you weren't expected to be um, is real having to explain and justify and tell the same story over and over and over again is very real. It's one of the hardest things that early returned missionaries get to deal with is explaining to a curious world why they're back. And so providing this space is something that every member of the church, everyone period can do. And it's something I hope they do is listening to stories about the service not about the return. I And we can do that. And I, you said a, a phrase I wrote down before we went live um, that really struck me. The 
and the tremendous grief you feel with the loss of a life dream. I don't think anybody's ever articulated that like that, Nathan. And I, I've, I, I know a bit about grief. We think of grief with the loss of a loved one, but this is huge grief. I mean, if there's a way to measure grief, this is on a this is up there on the nine ten world. And I think our ability to appreciate the grief that you feel is not matched with other types of grief that we might more easily understand. Yeah. I've been singing this song since I was three. You know, I hope they call me on a mission. And that's been so ingrained in my plans since I was as young as I can possibly remember. This expectation to serve a mission, the call to serve a mission, has been a part of my life plans for my entire life. That is probably the most committed to a plan I have ever been. And all of a sudden, having that rug ripped out from under me has been traumatic. I, I'm not going to lie. It, it has been absolute brutal. And so dealing with loss of major life plans, dealing with this sudden timeline you weren't expecting on dealing with has been, has been a process of grief. On the flight home, I denied that it was happening. I tried to just tell myself it was another transfer cycle. I was just heading somewhere exotic. Um, in the airport, I was angry. I will admit I was so angry walking to the escalator because I wasn't supposed to be at that place for another 17 months. Going down the stairs was brutal because it forced me to reckon with the fact that my family is a hundred feet away. I came to a point where I accepted it in my stake president's office. And then I was thrown right back into sorrow, just absolute sorrow for the loss of this dream and the loss of this plan. And I've been through that cycle many, many times, um, especially over the last two and a half months. Um, it's just been, it's been pretty brutal. I did, however, find some stability um, I gave a homecoming talk in my ward. In my ward, uh, that's unusual. A lot of early return missionaries don't get to do that. Um, and that's, that's standard across the church, is that it's up to the bishop's discretion whether or not early return missionaries have the option to give it. And then it's on the missionary to um, make that choice, whether or not they want to report to the high council or give a homecoming talk. Um, so two weeks ago, looking for closure, um, I, I gave that talk. I reported to the high council, didn't mention anything about the early return, didn't mention anything about the struggles, and instead focused it on the Savior's deliverance and the hope that we have in Christ. And that drove home for me just two weeks ago that that's what this is all about. Because if the last nine months of struggle and suffering and no sleep and questioning has anything to teach me, it's that I have a Savior who loves me and knows me individually and will bring me through. In my homecoming talk, I focused on 
the immediate goodness of God and what God's deliverance looks like. It goes through this spectrum. You start at the very beginning with just a hope in God that is immediately there. If you're praying, if you're asking God, that is part of his deliverance. It's just your hope in a better world because of him. It moves to faith as we are trying to exercise our faith, as we're trying to do works based on what he's promised us. And that brings peace. That's another step in the deliverance is peace. Maybe not immediate resolution of circumstances, but comfort and hope. And then at the end of the spectrum is deliverance, resolution, where maybe your situation has been a little better. You've received answers you needed, or you have found a a situation or a circumstance that has helped you. And that's the promise of this all, is that God will deliver you. He made that promise to Nephi. He made that promise to Lehi and Sariah in the wilderness, to Esther, to Ruth, to, I mean, David, over and over again, we get this promise, fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And that is a lesson I keep having to learn. That despite this grief, despite the major loss of life plans, God's going to lead me through. He has a plan for me. And he, he does the same for each one of us. Every single one of us, he has a plan for. So I found a little bit more closure. Giving that homecoming talk put the cap on my mission story. And I feel a little more comfortable moving past those seven months. I don't think I'll be out of this weird spot for a while. Okay. I've still got 13 months. Okay. I wasn't 13, 16 months that I wasn't accounting for. I can't do math, but, but in the end, God delivers. And that's, that's the beauty of his plan is that he will lead you through safely. So talk about, um, this article you wrote then. Yeah. Um, I think you wrote it in early May, even before your homecoming. Yeah. So I wrote this article. And we'll link it in our social media posts because it's a good article. Thank you. I wrote this article in early March and... Oh, I printed it. Yeah, so March. No worries. Um, I wrote this in early to late March. Uh, It started as just a private collection of thoughts on what I wish people would do. Um, Because the early return missionary experience is... The hardest part is the social pressure. Um, The hardest part is answering people's questions or dealing with concerned neighbors and friends and people who try to fix you, you know, when you're just trying to take care of yourself. Um, And so I, I wrote this article because I was trying to find guidelines that I could set for myself with my family, with my friends, with my ward. Um, on how to interact with me because I'm still a person. (laughs) Every early return missionary is still a person and we often act like they aren't. We don't know how to interact with people. Um, So this post started as a collection of thoughts. And then I started asking other early return missionaries, some from my support group, some from online, some I 
knew about what they thought people could do to improve their experience coming home and what they wish members knew, what they wish their friends knew, other missionaries knew. And as I wrote, it became clear as I sent it to some of these early return missionaries that I needed to publish it. So, um, I mean, there are a few major, major takeaways from this article. One of the biggest, biggest takeaways is that we can't focus on um, the return. The reason behind any early return is none of your business until a missionary decides to share. It's powerful. It's tough. I said that to someone once and they uh, they gave me a look as if I had just intimately wounded them, but I only knew it. It's part me. of creating good boundaries. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I liked this quote from James Thurber's Walter Mitty. Um, he says, my world and welcome to it if I choose to invite you. If I don't, please wait without or better still go away. And that was kind of the takeaway was that we will invite you into our space when we are comfortable inviting you. Ask us questions about our service, not our return. Don't fixate on one aspect of our missionary service. Fixate on what went well. Um, there's a few pieces of advice that I love from this article. Um, one early return missionary says, it's easy to fall into the ideas that early return missionaries come home due to some type of sin. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes it happens, yes. But just because they come home doesn't mean they don't have a testimony. Just because they came home doesn't mean they didn't serve a full mission. Um, there, there are just a few highlights that I absolutely love. I like this quote at the bottom the most. Um, that was an overwhelming sentiment. Do you want to read this quote? Do you want to? Sure, I'll read it. In the end, whatever early return missionary wants you to know is that we served our missions. They are full. They were hard. And they were exactly what we needed. We are real living people with real lived experience. Ask us about them. Don't assume that we're home for something grievous. And please don't to talk behind our backs. We promise we won't bite. That's awesome, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. That, that has been the core message ever since I got home. As I've been setting boundaries with family and friends and coworkers, the end all be all of this message is that don't, you know, don't try to fix us. Don't try and offer us advice on what worked for you to get rid of sleep. What worked for you to fix your shoulder. Don't sell me products to fix that. Uh, someone tried that. Don't try to intervene between us and the savior. Listen, love, and develop your relationship with the savior based on what we say. Because as cliche as it sounds, most early return missionaries have had some pretty brutal experiences, pretty traumatic experiences. Those have drawn us closer to the Savior. And over and over again, that's, that's the core message, is that our relationship with Christ is all that matters. This is really helpful, Nathan. And credit to you for having the courage to talk about this, to write about it, do a homecoming talk have lots of conversations to come on this podcast. It's a topic when I became a singles ward bishop, I had no experience dealing with. So I think it's an area where we can improve and we want to do the right thing. 
I'm I'm struck with just some of the things that you taught here. I'm I love your relationship with Heavenly Father, and I I I sometimes go to the forty thousand foot level in these sort of experiences and think what you know what were your older selves. You know, you're 20, how old are you, 20? I'm 19. You're 19. Isn't that awesome? And so sometimes I think if I could sit your 29-year-old self here and your 39-year-old self here and they could come on the podcast mm-hmm. and talk to you, and they might be more at the 40,000-foot level because they would, you yourself would have more context to what's going on Yeah. as you're just in this incredibly difficult spot. And so I don't know what the answers would be, but I, I would think that... I would think this experience, as you know, will help your 39-year-old self be a better person. Yeah. And I would, I get really tenderhearted here because I would think your wife, if she could be here with your 39-year-old self, would talk about how this experience is, is key for the Christ-like attributes and the gifts that have come into your life that is part of her falling in love with you, you. and part of your ability to be a wonderful father to your children. And no, and my guess is your 39-year-old self would say, you know, I don't tell everybody anymore I'm an early release missionary. That's yeah. sort of faded, and I served a mission. When people ask, I say I served in Spokane. And, That's it. And the t- length of time has become less aware. And mm-hmm. But I would think there's times when you will have an experience as a priestly or as a father, as a friend, and you will leave that experience and they will kind of look at you and they will go, you really helped me. Mm-hmm. And you won't, and you will know why you really helped them. Yeah. And so I go 40,000 40, foot level and I, you're in a brutal spot right now, bravely talking about it, bravely moving forward. But I, I think you're, I th- and maybe you feel this way that you'll be glad for this brutal, brutal experience. And it may have been something that you and Heavenly Father talked about in the pre-earth life, and would and he, you both knew it would be part of your mortal experience because of the of how be stretched you are. But your ability now to help other people, Nathan, you're mm-hmm. safe for people. Look at all the people that are reaching out to you, and you may find they're safe reaching out to you with sister challenges. Mm-hmm. So they may not be early release, but they may be. Other difficult topics, and yeah. they go, well, Nathan's pretty real. Yeah, <laughs> um, I probably can open up to him about this, and so maybe that's happening right now. You know, one of my favorite principles that I learned on the mission was that the Savior suffered. And, I mean, not to decontextualize that, but he suffered so much. We don't focus on his joy as much as we should. I mean, we talk a lot about his atonement and him paying the price for our pains and our afflictions and our weaknesses, but I absolutely love the fact that the Savior's suffering was real, and he told people about it. That doesn't mean I have to go around telling everyone everything. I haven't told you guys everything, but it does mean that when I open up to my experience, open up with my experiences that it creates an environment where the savior can exist. And that's the end goal of this life. (laughs) I struggle with it, but we're just shooting to become more like him and nothing happens unless we talk. You know, and I'm realizing I'm talking to a 19 year old man here. (laughs) You know, you're, 
the depth of your level of to communicate, um, your writing ability, just some of these gifts are way beyond your years. Thank you. And it's a credit to you and the man you are and the gifts you've developed. I've given a few blessings to early release missionaries, and I think one of the things I felt is just that you did everything you're expected to do there. And your mission is complete, and it's not time-related. Yeah. And it's sort of back to Elder Bednar talking about we're called to the work, but then separately we're assigned a mission. It's sort of like you you know, the success of your mission may not be time-related. We have sort of talked about it that way culturally, but mm-hmm. I would think if Heavenly Father were here, that's what he'd say to you. Yeah. you know, I accept your service. You did everything you needed me to do. Yeah. Um, you touched the people I needed to. You've grown the way I needed to. You have a relationship with me that was only possible. You always had a good relationship with me, but now it's better because you had to walk this road. And yeah. um, I'm also I read this quote a lot that uh, my friend Jenk Watts sent me about the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. And um, um, Norin, who wrote this comment, Henry Norin wrote that a minister's service, and this is who you are now. Nathan, Mm -hmm. will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think we can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. Yeah. So you're the wounded healer, and that's a good thing. We're all a little wounded. Thank you. We just kind of know about yours a little bit more, but we don't (laughs) fully know what it's like. Um, But I, I think that's one of the things that you are the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons your wife will fall in love with you. <laughs> Thank you. And she won't look at you as broken or lesser or a part of your life that's not worthy or whole or shameful. Mm-hmm. I think whoever marries you will get you yeah. and recognize that these are great Christ-like attributes and gifts that come into your life. And Thank you. So I just love this idea of the wounded healer. And, yeah. and I think Christ is the ultimate wounded healer. Oh, absolutely. What's that... We've got the Isaiah quote. Surely he has borne our griefs. Yes. You know, um, he suffered, he descended below all of us. Um, I mean, out of context for that one, but he did. That's he perfect. absolutely did. So that in the end, he could lift us up. My favorite verse over and over again is Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. That promise of being upheld by the right hand of his righteousness in the end is something we all can and should cling to. And it takes time to get there. Oh, it, it takes so much time to develop a relationship with your Savior. I'm nowhere near perfect. I know I'm not. But that relationship with someone who knows and understands me is getting better and getting better as I try and act on what he teaches me. And so in the end, it's it's this beautiful, beautiful relationship where I can turn to him and say, I am broken. I've got these problems. I need relief. I need strength. And he, he delivers. Yeah, I'm just touched by that. I think our, our institutional church is true, and I love our church, and it's true. But sometimes it doesn't, sometimes I think we've developed a culture where we turn to the institutional church for all of our answers. Yeah. And I think 
often those answers are there. Mm-hmm. But I think the church is trying to say, we're not the end, we're the means. The Come Follow Me program exactly. is more about us working directly with God, and the church is a means mm-hmm. with the priesthood, the priesthood keys, the ordinances. So I think one of the maturities you have is the church couldn't solve this for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean critical of the church. No. But I think it helps contextualize the role of the church. But what is solving this for you is your relationship with Heavenly Father mm-hmm. and the ability of the Savior to lift your burden. Yeah. And when you talk about Isaiah, you talk about all these scriptures, you didn't learn what you're telling us from a classroom. <laughs> no. You learned it from the classroom of the reality of your situation. Yeah. And that's where we grow the most because we're on our own the most. And you have been on your own the most even though you had a companion your whole time in a very unique, stretching way. Yeah. Any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners, Nathan? My final thought is honestly provide a space for people to be comfortable talking to you. With early return missionaries, ask them about their service. Don't ask questions about their future. Don't ask questions about why they came home. In the end, everything will be okay and if you're meant to know you will know but if not give them space for early returned missionaries i can promise that god delivers that's been a central tenet of my experience with him is that he will see you through when the mist is hard to see through when it's so foggy you can barely put two steps down and then look ahead he will lead you through. Keep hanging in there. It gets better. And for everyone, that, that promise is that God will deliver you. And that, I mean, that's my testimony. Um, close with the Savior's name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen, Nathan. Nathan Winters, thank you for joining us. Thanks to your If your parents are listening, they've done a great job, as you've shared, sisters and brothers and a family, a mission president, local leaders. They're great. And so you've had wonderful help. But um, thank you, Nathan Winters, for having the courage to share some of your journey journey with us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.